Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Even the Score podcast, a podcast about soundtracks and scores from movies, TV shows, and video games. I am, as always, your host, Don, and I'm here, of course, with my two colleagues, Anthony and Jason. Hello to you both. Well, hello. Afternoon, Don. Well, here we are again. We are recording another wonderful episode of our podcast, but we're going to do things a little bit differently for the next couple episodes. We thought what we do is something we're calling our masterclass episodes. And what that entails is each of us as a host is going to find a topic that we're really passionate and interested about. And we're going to kind of take the reins of the podcast um, for one specific episode. And it allows us to kind of flesh out some ideas, some things that we're really interested in, in talking about. We can lead some conversations and it just allows us to rotate the hosting duties around and really get to showcase our own individual voices while also having fantastic conversations with our co-hosts here. So this week, we are going to pass it over to our lovely pal, Anthony. And Anthony's going to take us through uh, the horror genre, something that we have talked about in, I believe, every single one of our previous episodes, Anthony's passion for horror. (laughs) And we thought it was good to get into a good horror discussion. Uh, So we're going to have ourselves a little bit of Halloween in June. And we are going to pass it along over to Anthony. So Anthony, go ahead and take it away. Well, I was going to dress up like a professor today, like wear, you know, a button-up cardigan and have a pipe, because when I hear masterclass, I always just think of somebody who's, like, well-versed, and they're going to take on a quote-unquote traditional dad role to tell you what's up. So I'm really excited for these episodes. I think it's a really neat idea for us to kind of dive in to our own passions, but I actually want to start off by knowing what your guy's connection is to horror. Obviously, I have a passion for it. I have a story. I've shared a little bit about that. But I know neither of you are really into the horror genre. So I'm really interested to hear about both of your histories and kind of what it was your connection. Was there any movies that kind of maybe scared you or was there anything that never really blended well with what you were looking for? And what were your overall experiences? Did you have any movies that you watched throughout that like, oh, yeah, I remember this movie or I remember that not liking that movie? Um, for me, I think my horror film story or lack thereof begins with the movies that they used to show on like the limited channels before everybody had cable. Um, I remember in particular seeing this one film, uh, I'm sure you guys know it, uh, Trilogy of Terror. I don't remember exactly how old I was. I'm going to say it's something less than 10. And let's just say that that film kind of screwed me up for a while. You know, the little voodoo doll that went yes. around chomping everything <laughs> with the the knife. I was pretty well sure that, you know, after I saw that film, that I had one of those running around uh, my parents' apartment and that it was going to get me sooner or later. The way I saw that must have just been an accident of what was on at the time uh, on, you know, public television channels but I think kind of from that point on it started to sour me on anything that I would kind of consider horror I'd say the next sort of foray into it if you can kind of call it horror because I know I mean I 
kind of on the fence on whether it's truly horror or not would be gremlins that would be sort of like oh the, yes that would be the the film that i saw in theaters and i mean i guess depending on who you ask maybe it's not but for me still a relatively young kid you know seeing it in the moment it was scary i mean because on the one hand you got these horrifically cute starting things <laughs> like you know i Mob wanted a y. gizmo i wanted yeah, to play yeah. with one of and course. then you know, it gets wet, and then all of a sudden there are a ton of little gizmos. Okay, cuteness overload. And then the mistake of feeding them after midnight happens, and then holy hell breaks loose. What is it? It's your new pet. Number one, you gotta keep him out of bright light. Number two, keep him away from water. It's incredible. And probably the most important thing, don't ever feed him after midnight. You know, and Spike was quite the character and about the same size, roughly speaking, as that trilogy of Terror Doll. And then you just sort of reinforce these little somewhat creepy uh, with sharp claws and teeth things that are going to get me in my sleep. So I, I think that's probably where I started to shy away from that altogether and just sort of focused on other things that I found more entertaining. I mean, like, you know, high school and such, like when I was actually to the extent that I consume movies, because, you know, I'm not like the biggest moviegoer. It, it sort of focused on like what story was being told. And it was definitely not about like, oh, I want to be scared or anything like that. It was more like, does this story interest me? Does like, does this seem plausible? Does it seem like this could happen? Like, is it exciting to me? All those things kind of sort of shifted where like my focus was with movies. And I think from that, you know, I saw like some other horror films here and there. I mean, like I definitely remember seeing Scream, although not necessarily because I wanted to. I think it was just like all my friends are doing it. So, you, you know. <laughs> totally pop culture. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It probably wasn't until my relationship with my wife that like she loves horror. She loves all horror in all of its incarnations, the what she calls great films, the the crappy like, you know, D level films yes. where it's like, you know, Ooh, zero yes. budget. Um <laughs> she loves them all and she will watch them no matter how horrible they seem to be in the moment till the end because once she's committed, you know, that whole sunk cost thing just sort of kicks in and it's like Nope, I'm watching this till the end. I spent my time. And while I've been a willing hostage uh, in certain situations because, like, I could go to another TV and watch what I want to watch, but it's like that requires movement. And in the moment, I was just too lazy to care. Yeah, I, I, that's about my exposure to horror films now. It's just kind of like, oh, man, I, I, I don't want to watch this, but I don't feel like moving. So I'm just going to, like, play my Switch or something like that. And, <laughs> you know, and then, like, criticize from, like, the, you know, totally. the I'd cheap just be like, this is awful. <laughs> Mystery Science Theater 3000, that stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Have you ever talked to your wife about her interest in horror? Like, what is her attraction to it? Has she ever explained to you or shared with you why she loves it so much? Not in a way that I've ever been able to understand. <laughs> <laughs> if I'm being completely honest best. about it. Yes, absolutely. That t- makes response. total sense. Because a lot of people who are into horror don't really know how to explain it. Like, I was even coming up with thoughts with myself to be like, you know, how do I quantify or, like, qualify my love of horror and why I love it so much? Yeah, I guess there's like certain things that I can come up with, but really only other or other horror fans typically will get 
what it is you're talking about. Because when you try to explain to it, exactly someone who's not into it, they're like, mm, what? I it's don't. an odd thing to try and quantify, really. Yeah. Like, it is such a, a completely out there genre with some pretty significant violence and harm yes. and death and destruction. I mean, how do you kind of say, yeah, I'm, I'm really into that <laughs> without sounding kind of yes, quite off. messed up? Well, what about you, Don? What was your exposure to horror? Did you have any specific moments that you were like, uh, no, I don't like that. <laughs> I have. So going through this topic was really interesting because it opens up the vault into kind of my past movie experience because the first thing I can really remember when it comes to my movie watching was going to the drive-in in our town and we we had a fantastic drive-in it was always packed throughout the summers of my youth it was kind of that real idyllic location for a young kid to get into movies uh, at and i remember watching arachnophobia hollywood pictures and amblin entertainment present arachnophobia eight legs two fangs and an attitude perk up lloyd if we find the spider that did this you can arrest him Arachnophobia, a thrillomedy. That summer, I remember my mom taking my friend Dennis and I to go see Arachnophobia, and we thought things were going to be all well and good, but that was my first experience into into really getting a sense of what oh. comedy or what horror was really <laughs> in store for. And it was quite something, and I would say it was traumatizing in one element in the sense of, holy cow, I, this was my first experience into this genre that literally frightened me, but now I'm intrigued. And I think that intrigue carried through into like youth where I would watch the things as that Jason kind of talked about. I got into Gremlins. I got into Child's Play. I got into all those sorts of um, movies that had somewhat comedic elements or, or they had kind of innocent parts to it. But then they had this really huge dark streak through it up until I would say I got into uh, high school when I started to really socialize with other individuals who were into movies just as I was. And we started to watch movies nonstop and we were consuming things that were kind of out there that that we typically wouldn't experience which was really the the heavy horror genre so we would see things like i got into the evil dead series with this great group of individuals we would consume bruce campbell like nobody's business we started to watch things like bram stoker's dracula we got into um really sort of um screwball stuff that still had really dark kind of undertones here and then as i was continuing on through life i started to get even kind of deeper and deeper into the darker side of the genre and i think the genre kind of changed a little bit in the industry as we started to see things like saw come out in my early university life and like we're starting to see more body horror more really intense torture porn out. exactly and i'm i'm kind of looking towards hostile as being that next sort of foray to that i mean we're just seeing people get hurt for hurt's sake sort of deal when I was also younger, we had access to a lot of American channels because that's what you do in Northwestern Ontario. You got access to all these random signals and you would see things like the horror movie of the week on Friday nights from somewhere in Michigan or, or Illinois. And we would see Elvira come up every once oh, in a while yes. and start to see her kind of hosting shows that were showing horror movies. Hello, darling. It's me, Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, that video cutie who makes the boys stand up and salute. -y. Well, it's time to reach into the old vault for today's video treasure. <laughs> Boy, talk about scraping the bottom of the barrel. Woo, smells like a really ripe one. Let's see, it's 
killers from space. Oh, yeah, right. Well, I'll just stick this where the sun don't shine. No, not there. In the VCR. And we just, it, that's kind of been my my history. It was just this opportunity to kind of experience things from a really young age, kind of go through it and see all the different facets of horror come out. And it's only been up until recently that I've just lost touch with the genre. I The last real horror movie I can remember sitting down and watching was The Descent. And I think that's an amazing horror yes. film because it's an all-female cast, all women like doing amazing things there. And I think it's it's a really interesting twist on the genre. And that's the last one I can really remember getting into. And then it's just kind of been out of my purview for quite some time. I know it's huge and I know it's fantastic, but it just it hasn't kind of held on with me ever since. So I'm sure that's a, a lacking because there's some really great ones out there now. I haven't seen things like Get Out or Us. I mean, Jordan Peele's doing amazing things with the horror genre, but it just hasn't been something that I've kept up with. Well, that's interesting that, like, given that timeline, considering that we are all within the same age range, I had the exact same experience, minus the drive-in, but... Uh, Arachnophobia was a uh, like a movie that I actually had a visceral reaction in the theater to, and I ended up having, at the time, which was probably a panic attack... <laughs> And uh, I completely repressed it for the longest time. Uh, and I actually have been dealing with my own arachnophobia. <laughs> and it's involved, like, exposure therapy. And I'm, like, now at the place where I um, am actively trying to find a tarantula that I can hold. <laughs> and there's a point at the end of that movie where a spider jumps out of, like, a wine cellar. <laughs> and, yeah, I had, like, I a complete freak out in the theater. I had to, like, my friend had to calm me down. But to make it full circle, I did buy the sound track about three years ago and let me tell you it's a doozy <laughs> i think that's the movie i can remember kind of first being that sort of introduction to movie music for me it was an amazing soundtrack to do today is kind of do a flyby horror but really kind of zone in on the 80s to 90s period because it was such a pivotal time for horror uh it really was commercialized it was mainstream it was a product horror had never been that way before and the 80s really transformed it into an existing genre and i think it legitimized it in a certain way as i'm kind of doing an overview history here I don't want it to just be me talking nonstop, so I'm probably going to reach out to you guys to be like, hey, this is what kind of happened here. Do you remember this? Or kind of just involvement so it's not, again, me just talking. Even though I really would love that. That would be great. Right? No guys? no Anthony TED Talk? <laughs> that's, that's coming 2022. I gotta hey, I'd pay it. good money to hear that. Well, I'm going to take that money. <laughs> I've, I've I've made a huge mistake. <laughs> so 
So I would argue, and this is kind of my thesis statement, if you will, that out of any genre of movie, I would argue that horror has the closest and deepest relationship with music. I think, obviously, excluding music documentaries, <laughs> I really do feel that horror has a genre, as a genre has the strongest relationship with music. And I think so many emotions are tied to horror movie music that it really stands out as a character in each movie. Even if it's a shitty soundtrack, then I would still argue it's a shitty character in a movie. <laughs> so I would argue that the backbone of any good horror movie is the music. And the reason being for that, I think, is because music can cause emotion. It can elicit emotion in people. And I think fear is such a misunderstood emotion. It's such a base emotion, the concept of fight or flight, but you can have control over that. And that's one of the things that I think drew me initially to horror. Because when I was being born in 1981, I was at the base of the horror genre kind of exploding, but I ended up doing a back history. And so I remember learning about, you know, the classic universal horror movie monsters of the 30s and the 40s. Frankenstein and Dracula and they were all based on literature and that's really what was scary to people at that time is you know between 1800 and 1900 you had a wealth of actually gothic horror that was being produced and that's how people were being scared as they would read uh even Edgar Allan Poe as an author pretty tame by today's standards but at the time he was very scary thank you Simpsons for that reference <laughs> But yeah, like novels were a way in which people were scared. And so that transition from novel to screen with this brand new technology, I'm not surprised that horror kind of made its transition onto the screen. It was so popular at that time. You know, you're just getting out of the depression. The uh, First World War has ended, but now we're still in this period of turmoil and uncertainty. And I think horror was a way for people to deal with some of the unfortunate things that were happening in a consumable short period of time. went to a movie because you wanted to escape and that escape involved some sort of reality check where you weren't having a good time and to see that on screen was a little bit of a safety that you saw the monster was vanquished and at the end there was a wrap-up and there was a resolution you're absolutely right during the depression um, movie ticket sales were actually one of the few things that continued to increase because people love the escapism element of it. And whether it's horror or whether it's kind of the Wizard of Oz and sort of fantasy with happy endings, there's just there's elements of happy endings in both, but there's just this really nice escape to it. Mm -hmm. And I, I really like how you how you were kind of mentioned the literature side because we read stuff like Dracula and Dracula is told through letters. Like the structure of, of yes. it is not like a proper narrative. It's told through the reading of correspondence between people and Van Helsing and, and all these other associates. And it's interesting to see that people were getting scared by stuff like that and then transitioning now to something that you physically see and you, you experience directly. I think it would be a huge leap into that fantastic novelty that is cinema. Yeah. And I think that 
transition from using your imagination and reading something to visually seeing it on screen, I think that has a lot of power. I think that's a lot of like all of a sudden things that you thought weren't real now are being presented as real. And there is a little bit of terror and scare in that. There's fear. So I can understand why it is attractive to some and it's unattractive to others because that might not be a comfortable space to be in. But again, during that time period, movies are a way for people to escape. And then, you know, post-1945 and 1946, once the Second World War ends, then there's this lull period until you get to the 50s. And then I think this is where American horror really started to take off. produced non-stop just churning them out there was no rhyme or reason it was just okay this has got to be a product and we're going to get it out we're going to get it out we're going to get it out and so many of the horror movies of the 1950s are very outlandish they're very campy they're very wild but man their soundtracks are so kooky and fun like there's some weird stuff going on in 1950s horror movies that was more comedy than fear and unintentional i think That was the biggest thing is people knew that there was the scares of the past, but they didn't know how to do anything new. So I found the 50s horror movies just to be ridiculous. I would actually like to see more of them remade. And you saw that a lot in the 80s is that there was a couple remakes of like these 1950s movies that were just campy and they seemed kind of good. And then they get the full-blown Hollywood treatment in the 80s. The 50s is also marked with a lot of political commentary too. There's a lot of like underlying messages there's a really interesting take in the 50s i think due to post-war trauma getting into cold war stuff with this the other and i see kind of from a, a list of the big popular horror movies from that era i mean look at invasion of the body snatchers not knowing who's who anymore and are there spies among us sort of attitude i think that's a really interesting take how it's it's absolutely a political commentary on what's happening currently in society being presented in the horror genre 100%. I think that's what is really interesting to me about horror is that it kind of holds up a mirror to society and kind of shows you a little bit of what's going on in that time period. It just didn't know what to do with itself. And it was mm -hmm. post-war so that by the time you get into the 60s, things are getting a little bit classier, as I say. How familiar are you guys with Alfred Hitchcock and any of his stuff? Very much so. 
Jason, did you enjoy any of his stuff, or have you have you do know Psycho? Have you seen Psycho? Not sure if I've seen Psycho. I'm definitely aware of Psycho. I'm aware uh, more so. I, what I remember of Alfred Hitchcock is sort of it really it's kind of that opening because I think it was something that either my father or mother used to watch on television periodically. Like it was, you know, obviously at that point syndicated and everything, but like it. Yeah, I mean it just. Just that slow walk to the the center of the the camera and everything. Good evening, and you know, I mean, it, it's that whole stick. I just want to be clear about one thing, though. Like as you guys are talking, because I'm definitely not the horror expert. I, I want when you all are talking about like it's like American cinema sort of holding a mirror to itself. It's a specific segment of American society <sighs> holding a, a mirror to itself because after all, well for what we've been talking about in past episodes. We're not talking about everybody's story first and foremost, and mm-hmm. we're certainly not talking about everybody's fears. You know, it was a specific segment of society's fears that I think must be coming through in some of those very earlier films that would not be reflective of American society at that time in its entirety. Absolutely, It's important to frame that conversation about what those fears were about. And it was predominantly a middle-class white American fears. Those were the fears that that were really being presented in those movies. And they would continue to kind of have a backbone within that horror. And again, that's where I think horror... It's done some growing up in the last 20 years. I guess that's what... I don't want to spoil my talk, or I don't know how to. <laughs> Jason's jumping ahead. No, 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 no. I no. I just wanted to interject that point. I'll I'll happily shut up because this isn't my segment. But I just wanted to make sure that, like, you know, especially being the the lone American in the on the podcast, it was definitely expressing some people's fears and some people's anxieties. But you know, that was not necessarily larger society. It was those that were in control of cinema at that time who definitely didn't look like me. We're working our way through the 50s and 60s, getting up to the point where we can kind of reference back to our black exploitation episode. Like horror is an exploita- exploitative um, genre, but it's still, Jason, as you succinctly put it, it's still going for the individuals who are being seen as the big market. It's the middle class white individuals who are buying movie tickets en masse. And as we start to get into the 70s, I'm sure things are going to start sort of splitting as we see multiple different genres coming up here all at the same time and probably some cross-pollination between what black exploitation is happening for and the horror genre itself but yeah i think it's very well put that there are definitely some holes completely missed when it comes to subject matter or who you're trying to speak to and the demographics that you're trying to market to we can continue on with the hitchcock stuff i mean my experience with hitchcock has been pretty extensive and you don't see a lot of non-white people in his movies it is very much oh your your actresses are blonde they're this specific type your heroes are white and they're this specific type and the bad guys are white and they're this specific type like there's not much sway within there so hopefully we'll start to see some deviations as we drift into an era where cinema becomes a lot more self-aware of who they need to market to because whether it's the shift to that more suburban area and you need to focus on the urban environments where the movie theaters are still being held or if it's just an awakening of realization that we're not capturing a message here or or someone's story um it'll be interesting to see how horror kind of captures that but to answer your question and not to to segue too much the alfred hitchcock film that i think i remember the most would be the birds not so much yeah so yeah interesting okay yeah like that's what i say alfred hitchcock i think there was a tv element to his movies and as well as the twilight zone so i guess 
what I wanted to kind of draw attention to at this point is the kind of melding of horror and sci-fi, different elements of horror and sci-fi kind of going together. Um, and it's interesting that you do bring up uh, the concept of race and stories and whose stories are being told. And I think actually there are some really good examples about how horror reflects the uh, social commentary of the time period that is going on at. They're very few and far between, but one of the examples from the late 60s that I always like to uh, evaluate because it's a really interesting classic horror movie, but I think there's representation in it that doesn't really talked about, and that's Night of the Living Dead. They're coming to get you, Barbara. Stop it! You're ignorant! They're coming for you, Barbara. The first kind of quote-unquote zombie movie that happened uh, in the late 60s, and the film has a black protagonist. And that was not because they wanted to have the character as a black protagonist. The actor who won the role wanted strictly on the audition. He just did such a good job that he replaced whoever was originally supposed to take the role and he played it. Like George A. Romero said, he never set out to make a social commentary, but that representation of having a black character as the main character in a horror movie at the late 60s when civil rights uh, right movement was like still happening was pretty powerful, I think. As much as I don't necessarily like the zombie genre, I think there is a lot of value in the stories that the that are told through that genre. So I do think that what we, you know, Jason, what you were talking about, about who's seeing, the, you know, what stories are being told, and Don, your comment about, you know, that time period of the exploitation of the 70s coming up is right on. That's kind of how horror was kind of progressing into the 70s. And out of this kind of sci-fi, thriller, horror mashup that was happening campily in the 50s was now getting a serious art treatment in the 60s. So Psycho, Rosemary's Baby, and all these really well-produced, made movies um, that were artistic were really starting to make their impact. So that by the time you get to the 70s, you have your first horror blockbuster in Jaws. Jaws is uh, really fascinating because it is an iconic score from John Williams, obviously. Like, that is a, ingrained in so many people's memories. Even if you really haven't seen Jaws, you definitely know the music. And I think what really is interesting about Jaws for me from a horror perspective is it launched the creature feature or reignited the love of the creature feature in the 70s. Oh, Barracuda. Or, oh yeah. Yes, like... Barracuda. Orca. So mm -hmm. it was a killer whale instead of Jaws. Mm -hmm. uh, there was Killer Bunnies. <laughs> there was a Killer oh, Bunny grief. movie. Not aware of Ants. that one, but. Yeah, Slugs. Um, oh, they, like, I, that, that's what's funny about the 70s to me is, uh, like anything, uh, Hollywood is a capitalist institution. And so it wants to make money. And so whenever something does make money, it just churns it out. I would say 95% of those times, those retreads are not as successful. But hot damn, they're so funny. On its way, Barracuda. Get me out of here! The mysterious underwater thriller, Barracuda. <laughs> Nobody suspects the danger. 
I, I see in the 70s happening with a lot of horror is that it does go for that blockbuster feeling. Jaws kind of opened things up that it was the first summer blockbuster. So Steven Spielberg all of a sudden had a huge career um, after, again, uh, interestingly enough, starting with a horror project. He His first um, directing gig was for a made-for-TV horror movie about killer trucks. He kind of got his start off in that weird sci-fi thriller horror genre um, that was popular in the 70s and then was able to parlay that into a huge movie career. But then Jaws is quickly followed by another popular, I guess, movie of the decade, The Exorcist. Which is a really interesting movie because, again, it's a, it was that Hollywood blockbuster, but it was also written and directed by somebody who knew what they were doing. William Fredkin. I have a lot of respect for him. He actually directed another thriller movie called Cruising uh, in 1981, which deals with a serial killer in the queer community, the gay male community. And that was done... Again, with a lot of protest, uh, but it was a really fascinating movie that I had loved The Exorcist, but as a queer person, watching films made for about the queer community and the gay community made by heterosexuals is often challenging, and it's really hard. <laughs> and there are very few examples that I've come across where heterosexual writers or directors know how to properly convey queer emotion. As a thriller and a horror done by the guy with the from The Exorcist, it's a really fascinating commentary, and I think again it's a a discussion that doesn't happen a lot in horror. There's always a lot of talk about these big blockbusters that were happening, and you know the the mainstays of horror. But I really like to bring attention to some of the smaller stuff that wasn't being featured, or you know might have caused controversy and might have gone away. But for me, something like Cruising, which I didn't discover until much later in my life, was a really interesting movie to watch as a horror movie is a little bit graphic but again it's also a really poignant telling of a story that actually has happened a new york city detective in search of a killer is about to disappear into the night what he discovers will change his life forever Cruising. Again, for me, the 70s was a little bit more of this Hollywoodization. And so referring back to our episode about black exploitation films in the 70s, one of the things that I don't think we ever got a chance to talk about in that episode was the black exploitation horror, which was huge. Like there was a lot of exploitation, uh, sorry, horror, black horror movies that were happening in the late 70s. And there's this documentary on Shudder called Horror Noir, and it's all about uh, black presence in horror. And I think the 70s for me is a really big turning point because, as you were saying, Jason, the stories before were primarily for a white audience. There was now stories being told for different audiences, particularly black audiences. And even though horror wasn't huge, there still was movies being promoted and created that featured black characters. And that is a piece for me that I don't have a lot of connection to. My own perspective as a white person really guided my knowledge about horror movies. And I think there are certain tropes that got established 
And that as the 70s and into the 80s, I think the inclusion of minority characters, specifically black and queer coded characters, was a step in the right direction, but there was still a lot wrong with it. There's still a lot of poor representation. There's still a lot of stereotypical representation. And there's still a lot of, I don't know, it's, I don't know what to call it. It's not, it's not a political incorrectness, but there's an outdated notion to a lot of the things that might have been presented at that time. And Anthony, not to to interrupt you or anything, you know, when I made the comment a few moments ago, it was more than just representation. It was also this kind of nod to, I think, what you're getting at now, that it was the perspectives and anxieties of the folks that were making the film. I mean, I think not being an expert about horror at all, one thing that's kind of painfully obvious to me is that a lot of times these films have second and possibly third meanings. Like, you know, there's sort of what the story is being told, but it's really sort of like, oh, well, if you substitute this thing, it's really like a commentary on how, you know, such and such is afraid of things as vile as like interracial relationships or something crazy like that. Like, you know what I mean? It's so when I'm not just speaking about sort of just the cast and who makes up the films and those perspectives, but it's more like these secondary and tertiary sort of meanings of these films sort of reflect the power structure and sort of the the, the biases that were of the people that were producing the films. And, you know, to the extent that they were artsy or sort of, again, having these more complex sort of perspective and viewpoints, it was reflective of the ones behind the camera as opposed to anything else. It's kind of that classic situation of when you're trying to create something, creators are always told, write what you know. And we will never get the perspectives of other individuals if we are only promoting individuals of a specific race or a specific gender or a specific ethnicity. Like we're looking at a very white industry who is only now really providing opportunities for more and more diverse voices to be heard. I mean, we we can only look to to kind of the recent Oscars where for the first for only the second time a woman director has won best director. We don't get that perspective. We still don't have a black director who has won that award yet. Like we're we're still in this really archaic age of the people who are able to tell these stories and to utilize it for their own perspectives and the ter- secondary and the tertiary perspectives however they want to layer their stuff it still comes from a very sort of one-minded one directive um, focus because you don't have the diversity in the room and if it's if a movie is the vision of the director and if all the directors are white males you're only going to get that one specific perspective Absolutely. And I like this space to be able to uh, kind of talk through that and work through that because I think there are still some blind spots in which my horror is so wrapped up in my own experience. And so I really appreciate these conversations of like, oh, yeah, there was greater things going on. Uh, And it's a nice reminder to me that I'm like, I really need to sometimes get out of my own headspace to be like, okay, this was how I kind of uh, experienced these horror movies, but that doesn't necessarily mean it was the experience for all horror movie people seeing that. And I think as we're kind of like talking about the 60s, or the 70s and going into the 80s, I have to talk about my number one, what I would consider the number one horror movie soundtrack 
at this point of all time, I would still say it sits at the top of my list, um, and that's John Carpenter's Halloween. For me, that is such a piece of minimalist music, but it is the character in the movie. As much as Michael Myers is the villain and Laurie Stroud, our babysitter, is the protagonist, the music to me is the main character in that movie. And that's what really pulls it all together. And I love listening to the Halloween soundtrack at any time. I think it is such a wonderfully built soundtrack that John Carpenter kind of unintentionally created a classic for me. Like it's so powerful and it's so well blended with the movie. He was doing so many things on that movie. He was the director, he was producing, he was writing the music. So he just went into that with such a passion project that he created something is so important to me. And it just hit me at the right spot. When I watched that movie, I just, I would rewatch it again and again and again because it was so well-crafted in my opinion, but also just so creepy. And that music really did it to me. It was, yeah, I remember trying to, when cell phones first started coming out in the 90s, which is when I did see Halloween and became obsessed with it. I was such a nerd. I was trying to get the Halloween theme for my Nokia theme. (laughs) Realizing that John Carpenter created it, that's baffling to me. I always saw John Carpenter as director and writer and creator in that sense. I never knew that he hit, he did the soundtrack for Halloween and a bunch of the subsequent follow-up sequels as well. So that's quite impressive. Um, so, again, Halloween is a success story for horror, but it actually created a bit of a tumultuous relationship with its creator. And I think it still is one of the most impactful soundtracks to this day um, with how powerful it is. The second movie, Halloween in the franchise, is known for being a little bit of a a popular midnight movie because people would smoke joints and go watch this horror movie and laugh. And it was kind of one of the first times that I remember reading about how a horror movie was not scaring people. They were going there to laugh and they were kind of chuckling at it. And instead of being terrified, there was this experience of laughing. And uh, I don't know if it was a coping mechanism that things were so gruesome and outrageous that people just laughed, but there seemed to be this new addition of humor. And this is also the same time that Evil Dead comes out. Evil Dead 2. Dead. By Dawn. Um, So you have a little bit of that, you know, black comedy starting to come into the that mainstream storytelling that Hollywood was doing at that time. And that's where I think we start to see the stuff with like gremlins, you know, that's where the black comedy was really pushed into the mainstream. And you have this lighthearted comedy with really dark elements. And there were parts of that movie that originally were going to be a lot darker. Um, At one point, the mom was supposed to be killed on screen by the gremlins, and her head at one point was supposed to be kind of like a a jump scare. 
Um, and so that's how, like, the original version of Gremlins was pretty dark. Uh, and then it was lightened up. So not only in the the 80s do you have this, like, commercialization, uh, an expansion of horror, but you get horror light. You start to get, like, kids' horror. And you get this, like, family-friendly black comedy. You're not really sure if it's, you know. And it starts to, I started to see some of that permeate through a lot of the other 80s movies where there's a slight dark edge to some stuff, but it's not necessarily horror. There might be some sci-fi or some thriller elements. And, like, The Goonies is an example of what I think of, a, you know, how it's kind of this light-hearted comedy, but there's some, like, terror, like, scary elements to it for kids. And again, I think that was a part of, like, a bigger narrative that was happening in the 80s. You had all these, like, nerds that were creating a lot of fantasy and a lot of imagination tales and a lot of wild and wonder and using movies as an escape. As I, again, look at the 80s and what are those stories being told, to bring back to Jason's point, the representation started to be there. You started to see more characters, not only of color, but uh, females are starting to have their own stories and there's more uh, presence of queer characters but one of the tropes that unfortunately comes out of the 80s is the villainization of queerness because at the same time that horror is exploding in the 80s the AIDS uh, epidemic is happening and it's not being talked about for me my like my story is I am gay and even before I knew I was gay, I knew it was evil to be gay and that AIDS was going to kill me. And I know that sounds like a really harsh reality, but that's what it was, is that I remember seeing uh, Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge, uh, which I actually have a poster of because it is considered the gayest horror movie that's ever been made. And the whole concept of the movie is, again, Freddy in the first one is taking over the dreams. He's invading their dreams and killing them when they can't, when they're powerless. The second movie takes this idea that Freddy Krueger can be an avatar. And he's starting to take over the boy who's moved into the house from the first one. And so there is this story that is unintentionally homosexuality being represented as an experience in a horror movie. And this kid, this boy, is the first male scream queen. And it turns out he actually was gay in real life, hadn't really come out at that time to everybody publicly. He had come out to friends. But that movie was written by a man who was in the closet at that time and thought that this concept of scaring boys in high school that with homosexuality would be the story that this is that Freddy's going to tell in the second movie. And this is a big franchise. Like, Freddy had hit huge. Um, and he hadn't been established as a character yet, but the second movie comes out and it does really well in Europe because there's a pseudo-sexual plot line that Europeans apparently tend to understand a lot more. And it's a hit in America, North America, but I think it's really important to highlight what was happening with Freddy 2 <laughs> because it is such a milestone for me in horror and queer representation of horror that is not good. But I think there's benefit to seeing it. And I think there's benefit to having it as part of the story. I need you to let me stay here tonight. Something is trying to get inside my body. Yeah, and she's female and she's waiting for you in the cabana. And you want to sleep with me.
Um, so I guess I want to put it out to either of you. Have you ever heard of Freddy Nightmare on Elm Street 2 being the gayest movie horror movie there is? No. <laughs> but, <laughs> but in a way, so this is, and this is kind of what I was thinking about with like some of those secondary and, you know, uh, like layers of meaning because, you know, I mean, one thing that I'm surprised, I'm sure you'll probably get to is like just how sex and sexuality just in general, not even, you know, whether it's homo or hetero or whatever, just how, how much of a trope it is in horror films and how cliche it is that the first person who has sex dies like you know what i mean like there's obviously a perspective of the people making these films that have like this almost puritanical view of sexuality or something but so i'm not surprised by uh nightmare on elm street 2 or whatever being like a homosexual sort of like expose or something lack of a better word but i I was not aware of that no me neither i had no perspective of that i mean i had only watched the first nightmare on elm street i have not seen two or three or or four i've i came back to the the freddy character when it was freddy versus jason so i kind of lost touch with it for a period of time but that's a really interesting perspective when it comes to the second movie there and with representation i mean you brought out some pretty heavy stuff there with anthony your take on you being gay and the horrors and the realities that you will face or could face as a gay man in north america and that's some pretty intense stuff and then to to kind of see what nightmare on elm street 2 was putting out there i'm sure that just kind of just mind-blowing i'm sure at the time for you i'd like I'd, i'd love to hear more about kind of your internalization of seeing nightmare on elm street 2 whenever you did yeah so uh it's funny because I started getting into horror, uh, I would say, probably in the early 90s, like late 80s, early 90s. My first exposure to horror was, uh, I must have been about four years old, and my parents watched The Witches of Eastwick. And we were at a cottage, and uh, I still love this movie to this day, but there's a scene in the movie where Cher pulls back the covers of a bed, and it's covered in snakes. And that was too much for little old Anthony. And so I remember running out of the room and, like, jumping onto the bed and just being like, oh my god, oh my god, oh my god, oh my god, is that real? Like, is that, oh my god, does that happen all the time? Oh god! And so I remember at that point being terrified. And me wanting my parent or a parent to come and comfort me. And I I wanted that. I was like, oh my god, I'm, oh, I need that. And nobody came. And I remember realizing that I was like, I'm gonna survive. And then I walked back out, and I remember I went back to watch the movie. And that was like the first time that I remember being like, I am too scared to see this. I have to leave. And it didn't really happen a lot after that because I didn't really notice it, I guess. I would watch Little Shop of Horrors. And we, I talked about this in the past episode. That, that was my favorite movie as a kid. And then I remember going to see Terminator 2. And in Canada, specifically Ontario, our rating system is uh, PG and uh, adult accompaniment 14. So instead of PG-13, we have... AA-14, which means you have, if you're under 14, you have to be accompanied by adult. Terminator 2 is rated 14A, and I must have been like 10 or 11 at the time, and my uncle took me and my cousin to go see it, and that movie scared me. Like, Terminator 2 scared me. The scene in which he, or sorry, Sarah Connor, and they're at the hospital, and there's the lighting in that scene, and it's just so pale and white, and I remember being like, oh oh my god this is really scary and being 10 or 11 and watching a movie that was supposed to be for 14 year olds in my brain i was like i'm an adult now 
Like, you're allowed to go to the movies and watch big people movies now. And so after that, I felt like I was an adult, so I needed to seek out adult movies, which are horror movies in my bed. Like, I want to watch adult movies. I'm an adult now. It's, I, oh, I, I, I want the scene of Anthony going up to a classical <laughs> blockbuster somewhere in Toronto or wherever in southern Ontario. Excuse me, sir. I want to know where your adult movies are. I am Anthony, an adult. <laughs> if it makes you feel any better, when I was like a teenager, I actually, before I knew better, I thought being horny just mean, meant that you needed a shave. So imagine my <laughs> chagrin. Like... Telling like an adult, like yeah, I'm kind of horny right now, and it, like you know, I mean, so like, that, I, I, um, that made Trump whatever you just threw out. This is awesome. I'm glad to know that I'm not the only awkward one. This yeah, no. nice. oh, of course not. So nice. Yeah, <laughs> but um, so as I got into horror movies in the '90s, what ended up happening was I got a lot of VHS movies, so I wasn't able to go see them in the theaters because I wasn't old enough yet. But uh, my local the my local video store did not care about renting to an 11 year old you know various horror movies from the 80s so what ended up happening is between i'd say 1990 and 19 like 95 and 96 i actually ended up watching a lot of horror movie series in reverse so i remember watching child's play 3 first i remember watching uh nightmare in elm street 3 first I basically would start almost halfway or at the end of the series, and then I would work make my work way back. So I watched for a Nightmare on Elm Street three, which is my favorite Nightmare on Elm Street. It's so well done, and it's such a continuity of the first two movies, and then it builds on its own. So I watch the third one, and I'm absolutely in love with it. And then I go back and I watch the second one, and right off the bat, I'm like, this is different because there's a male lead instead of a female lead. So at this point in my gender binary brain, I'm like, girls are the protagonists in horror movies and boys are the evil ones. So I'm watching Freddy 2 and all of a sudden the boy is now the one in distress. And I'm like, whoa, that's kind of different. And at this point I had had, I, it's not a queer realization. I had had dreams and daydreams about my friend's older brothers, like you would Disney characters. So that's the consent, like that's the idea of gayness in my head. I don't think I'm gay. I know I need to be straight. I know that everybody else is around me is straight and I need to adhere to that. So when I'm watching this movie and there's a scene where the gym teacher has punished the main character and uh, he sends them to the showers because he was fighting and they ended up ripping each other's pants off. <laughs> and so I remember watching this movie and being like, why is that interesting? <laughs> why? They just pulled down their pants and I want to know more. <laughs> And then, I need to shave. Yeah, right. I'm feeling so horny. <laughs> I, I'm and getting so, tingly. <laughs> exactly. I was like, I don't understand what's going on, but I like it. Mm -hmm. And so it evolves into this next scene where Jesse, the main character, is at night. He's sleeping and he gets taken over by Freddy. And Freddy takes him to where the gym teacher is hanging out at a local bar. And it's a gay bar. And Jesse walks in in the middle of the night in this gay bar and my body just lit up to be like, what? What is this place? And it was terrifying to me because I realized that there was a dark seediness to it. But unintentionally, I knew that there was the part of me that's like, oh, this is your people. And so I didn't know it at the time, but I knew that there was some sort of connection to it. And so I'm watching this movie in this scene, and it's very scary. And he ends up 
the coach ended up dying. So right off the bat, I got excited. And then all of a sudden in the next scene, he's killed. And so that was, I remember, one of the first times that I was like, oh, I can't be gay. (laughs) I shouldn't do that. And so, you know, as we're talking about horror as a morality here, I think this is a really interesting part where, yeah, I started to watch that horror and I was subliminally taught that I'm like, oh, yeah, it's not good to be gay. And that goes back to what Jason was talking about, this puritanical sort of perspective of moviegoers in the horror genre. You have to be straight. You have to be mild-mannered you have to be abiding by your parents you need to be doing x like very very sort of classical views of what is a good person is and the first person to have sex killed if you lose your virginity killed if you take drugs killed if you're partying if you're at a keg party with all of your high school friends and oh you something fishy is going on killed you have to be like the Sydney Prescott of the situation where you are the virgin, you are good, you have kind of things happen happening around you that are bad, but you still stay good. What I think horror does is give a voice and create characters that people can identify with, but sometimes the social messaging is not as strong as it should be, or it's telling morality details that are from one vantage point. And for me, I think one of the things that I started to take away from that, and I started to really enjoy, is that I knew that those tropes were wrong. I knew that the story was wrong. I knew that the politics were wrong. And so now, when I watch Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge, At the time, it was a little bit of a traumatic experience because it provided me the first narrative I learned that queer people are going to die in movies. And that is still true to this day. Like, it is one of the most infuriating tropes that is still existing in this day that queer people do not get to live in movies. We still die a lot. But that I can watch now. Freddy 2 I can watch now with a delightful glee because I turned the narrative on itself. You know, the outcome of the story is Jesse conquers his homosexuality and he falls in love with Lisa and she saves him and the gay person dies. The potentially gay best friend he is, you know, wanting to do things with but doesn't dies and the straight couple survives. So in that movie, that's the outcome. But I can watch that as a queer person with my queer friends and straight friends. And we can turn that narrative on its head and be like, this is ridiculous. This is stupid. And we can ownership. There's an ownership. There's a power that I'm taking back. I feel this is just my narrative and this is just my belief that I can take back that power when I watch that and I can laugh at it. And I think that is a, a, a different reaction than what horror movies were generally made to do. They were made to instill fear and they were made to help share a story or a morality tale. And that's why I think for me, I'm really finding that there's a lot of queer people that really enjoy horror movies, even the ones that do tell those poor morality tales. And I think it's because we take it and we we play with it and we we know it's not real. We know it's not actual. We know it's not truth. Um, and I think there are sort of still certain things that we, I, I take from that. So anyway, the other thing I want to end on that note is there's a documentary called Scream Queen, and it's all about um, the uh, Jesse, the, the gentleman who played that character, and his journey from what happened when he started in that movie to the 20 to 40 years after that he's been dealing with that. Uh, and it's an absolutely incredible documentary. I can't recommend it enough. It's beautiful, it's poignant, and it really breaks down the story of how 
you know, this is, was one of the first examples of a mainstream movie dealing with queerness. Um, and so I think it's amazing. It was a horror movie. Um, but I think there's also some bigger stories to be told. So, Anthony, I think one of the things that occurs to me, even from my sort of outsider's view of the horror film genre, is that generally speaking, the music in those films has a particular structure. It has lots of use of crescendo. There's a general use of softness that becomes violent in its change. What is it about the horror film genre that you think lends itself to that sort of I guess, what makes it a good character in a horror film? I think what makes a good horror movie soundtrack is the use of perceived notes what that you're expecting are going to come, and then composers doing the opposite of that. As I understand it, and the way I've heard a couple composers talk about it, what they're trying to do when they create that sound is there are certain melodies and harmonies that are pleasing to a lot of uh, human ears and certain flows of notes have been proven to to increase calmness and reduce anxiety so certain sounds are actually really enjoyable and more pleasant to hear on the ear palate if you will and i think what horror movie composers are doing is playing with those notions of that what's comfortable for your ears to hear and then doing the opposite of that and i think uh, I always look back to Hedry Manfrini, who uh, made the soundtrack for Friday the 13th. He really created that iconic... And that was just a simple thing that he did because when it created that echo, it created reverberation that it made his the hair on the back of his neck stand up. And so that, to him, was how he kind of knew what was going on with the character of that music, is that it elicited a physical response to him. The composer of Nightmare on Elm Street did the exact same thing. When he was composing, you know, he would play with this nice tune that would be pleasant to his ears, and then he would go back and he would play it, but he would play the opposite note, or a down a note that's below. And so that, to me, is really where musicians use instruments to elicit emotion and physical responses in the body. And that's how I think, for me, horror can be so attached to music. Because when you watch a scene of, you know, some somebody walking through a forest late at night, just without music, it's real-life footage. With creepy music, all of a sudden you don't know what's out there. You're, un- you're feeling uncomfortable. If you play calm music over that same scene, all of a sudden somebody is now at peace and enjoying the serenity of the forest. So not only does music in that sense kind of change what is going on in the movie and the scene, but the horror, I think, is going specifically for that jugular. They, they're trying to really fuck you up. <laughs> in my history with horror movies and the horror movie music genre for me there's a couple sort of tropes that are built into horror music that indicates to me why it is utilized to specifically for that genre um one is the work of uh, bernard herman from psycho 
we are looking at an individual who utilizes a very high range, like very high notes when it comes to significant scenes. So if we think about the shower scene in Psycho, we have these harsh strings as the knife is coming down. ear piercing and i think it's startling because it's sudden it's kind of hitting that range that is not comfortable it's not normal it is indicating stress and anxiety and horror within the audience and then i think there's also there is also a really good use of lack of music when it comes to a point of time when you when you are supposed to be feeling stress and anxiety i think the lack of a score can be really well like utilized to to the best effect or even a subtle simple sound like a single note on a violin that's just kind of playing really really silently like even just that quietness or lack of sort of that big sort of boom i think is really well used throughout the genre as well so there's there's a lot of tools and techniques that are kind of at the disposal of composers not to mention instruments i think if i i think about classic movies we talk about the theremin a lot it, it's an electronic instrument that's not normally heard it has a warble to it it's really awkward to manipulate and i think that presents that sort of again that uncomfortableness that unease of this is not something that i'm used to hearing i should understand what's going on around me or what i should be hearing and it's just not so why am i experiencing this and that anxiety kind of builds with it and that's again where the kind of the blending of the horror and the sci-fi comes in with that the use of that theremin for sure i have you ever seen somebody uh, have you ever seen a theremin being played live it's amazing <laughs> it's so it's so, really cool. It's, like, the whole concept of theremin is that there's the box, then there's an antenna, and there's a receiver. And so between the antenna and the receiver, it, when you interrupt the flow of energy, it creates different sounds. So a theremin player is just, like, basically waving. <laughs> and they're, like, moving their hand in between. And it's pretty kooky and funny. Speaking of instruments, I think it's very good segue into the horror instruments, uh, or sorry, the instruments that have been created solely for horror movies. Specifically, I'm referring to the water phone, which was invented in 1975. And then more recently, there's been a machine called the Apprehension Engine. And this was created by a Toronto artist, and it was used more contemporarily in a movie called The Witch, which came out in 2017, I believe. But these specific inventions, those two, the waterphone and the Apprehension Engine, are really tools that I think are aided and were created for the sole purpose of creating uncomfortable emotions with music. And so... Uh, I think those two instruments are some of the things that you're going to hear most in a lot of horror movies throughout the 80s and the 90s. And then even now with the Apprehension Engine, which I remember somebody sent me a couple years ago, and I just was fascinated that somebody had created this instrument. In my head, instruments have been around for centuries, but to understand that instruments are being created, new instruments are being created, kind of blew my mind a little bit. And the fact that they were associated with horror projects, specifically, I have the soundtrack to The Vich. I've never seen the movie. I've heard it's great, and I will watch it at some point, but I love the soundtrack. And so that Apprehension Engine and Waterphone are 
featured so heavily that you can't help but feel uncomfortable when they're used. When they're not used in um, horror movies, they tend to create a scene of tension. A music to me is all about inspire, like eliciting emotion. And so, when you have a horror soundtrack that is eliciting a fear, I think that's just as powerful as something that you know creates elicits the feeling of happiness or calmness. If that makes sense, I, I kind of feel like it would be a disservice to sort of ignore the whole jump scare sort of progression, I guess, that a lot of older films used a lot. I think one thing that maybe sticks out in my head, and I don't remember if I heard my wife say this explicitly or where this came up, I think she may have been talking about Hereditary or something where, like, Mm. there wasn't that in the music. Like, there wasn't sort of, like, these obvious cues to be afraid or something, but, like, the music itself was really unsettling. But I guess, you know, one thing that does sort of jump out to me when you're talking about, like, composers doing a certain thing and then doing what you don't expect, even though I am just a very, very early musician in this, one thing I've heard a lot of, like, great artists talk about is, like, the need for resolution in a set of, you know, in a progression. And so people, I I think they're sort of getting to the psychology of music in that, like, when you hear a certain set of notes, you expect it to end in a particular way. And I think what I hear you saying, Anthony, is that, like, what horror does especially well is that they play on what you would expect to have happen next musically and do something totally different, which is perhaps why it's so jarring and it creates the the response that it does. much more to add than that but it does sort of make sense just based on what little i've sort of been picking up from you know music and sort of my own exploration of it that makes complete sense and i think you using the term need for resolution is absolutely what a lot of horror composers play with and so there is uh and it's funny you bring up hereditary because i do feel like that was one of those soundtracks where it didn't rely on jump scares but overall the tension in that movie is built with the music so that when things do explode at the end in that last like five to ten minutes it is resolution but it's uncomfortable resolution. So it's funny that, you know, you're talking about that need. And I do think that's absolutely true. And maybe that's something that might be an interesting look at for contemporary horror. And again, it, my next masterclass is I'd lo- really love to look at horror from 2000 to uh, 2020. Cause I think there has been some 
so many evolutions and so many changes in it. Um, and that would be an interesting one to look at is how the soundtracks have evolved from basing around a single jump scare, maybe to something a little bit more progressive as you were talking about. In regards to the, your relation with jazz, and I'm wondering if there's any sort of parallels that you can draw between jazz and horror with the idea of jazz kind of not doing the standard thing like the idea is improvisation and hitting notes that aren't expected can you see any sort of similarities between those two genres yes i think that there probably has to be but i don't know that i know enough to fully understand it you know one of the things that drew me to the the base in particular and deciding like hey you know i'm a almost 45 year old individual who's going to start playing an instrument all of a sudden was really listening to some of the really great bass players and sort of observing that, yeah, you've got some of these, like, uh, you know, in like funk and like all these other genres, you've got like a lot of times these bass players that are like, you know, they are laying a groove and it's really funky. And for the most part, it's pretty repetitious. Like, I mean, what they're doing is what they're doing. Like they have their part to play in the song and they're keeping to it. One of the things that I think I appreciate now about folks like, to keep it contemporary, like folks like Thundercat or to go into the past like Jocko or like Paul Jackson or like, I can't remember his name, but like this other bass player from like the Weather Report. One of the things I'm starting to appreciate is like the bass is capable of all sorts of sounds that aren't typical. If you just sort of expect this very percussive sort of like in between piano and drum sort of sound from the bass, then what some of these artists are doing with the bass is kind of like nothing short of amazing because like they're getting like all you have to do is listen to where Jacko is playing this bass and it's like all of these weird sounds are coming out of his bass that you would never actually expect a bass to be capable of. Yet he's making not just a harmonic sort of play, like he's producing melody with a bass. There are some really complex things that are being done. And it's like, and now that I'm just beginning to sort of get the whole fingering thing, understanding that, like to appreciate the fact that these people can move around the neck of their bass in such a way that they can do all these things within milliseconds is a, like, it's just, it's mind blowing. So this is a tangent. I, I will just say that the fact that they can do things that you don't expect with those instruments definitely has a parallel, but it has a totally different effect. When I hear those things happening in jazz, they're not jarring. They're amazing. Like, they're kind of like, whoa, like, you know, mind blown. But it's not like I'm anxious or I am like, like, you know, it, it's not, none of that. So there's a, par a parallel there for sure. I just don't know enough about music theory to understand it. No, completely understandable. I just thought I'd put the question out, just see if there's anything there and and give it a go. Because classically, I mean, whenever I look at the jazz sort of genre, it's always that idea of you don't know what you're expecting. You don't know what could happen. And every situation could be something completely new that you're experiencing. Mm -hmm. But I, I completely take the idea that it's the intention of jazz is not to elicit an anxiousness or an uncomfortableness or for you to feel really to start getting a flop sweat from really negative stuff. It is still a musical genre as opposed to a genre of music that is intending to influence an experience that goes along with a visual medium. Yep, well said. 
Yeah, and I think that's a fascinating discussion point that I think we should put a pin in and come back to because the concept that you can use the same, what am I trying to say? Basically the concept that you're improvising or kind of going against what you should be expecting and having two different outcomes is really interesting to me. And it's almost like you have to walk a fine line where, yeah, the fact that horror leans into that and jazz leans out of that is really fascinating to me. And so I like the idea that music can elicit emotions and just those two opposite experiences really kind of broaden my understanding of horror movie music. I think for me, the big takeaway from the 90s is that horror didn't know what to do with itself in that decade. (laughs) It had reached the peak of stardom in the 80s, and I think it was, you know, so mainstream and so popular. Like, at one point, Freddy had breakfast cereals. So, you know, even the concept that you take a horror movie experience and it's watered down to the point where you're producing breakfast cereal for kids with a horror movie icon kind of takes away his fear and his power. Like, you know, there's a little bit of a downturn in the 90s because people don't know what to do with horror. It's it's kind of been saturated to this point where everybody knows what's going to happen in a horror movie, but they don't want to... Nobody really cares about it. So I find in the 90s, you start to have a little bit more experimental attempts at horror. And for me, one of the biggest uh, attempts to create a horror icon, but also turn a written story, a literature story, into a visual medium is Candyman. Have you ever heard of Candyman? If you look in the mirror and you say his name five times. In cities everywhere. Candyman. They whisper his name. Right. Candyman. It's just a story. Candyman was originally written by Clive Barker. He is a queer author who is based out of London. And I would argue that Clive Barker is probably one of the most well-known horror authors, and he happens to be gay. And I have a lot of pride in that because he really has a knack for writing things about mundane things that can be very creepy. And his big thing is short stories. So he wrote something called The Forbidden, and uh, it was centered in England, and its focus was on class. And this concept that an urban legend had been created and that they existed and a student is doing a report on it and becomes enraptured in it and ultimately falls victim to the the urban legend. In the 90s, it was uh, adapted by a studio and taken from England and transported to America And they changed the race of the villain to be black in American setting. And they set it in Chicago, specifically Cabrini Green. One of the main points of this movie is that it really introduces not only a black villain, but a narrative that includes the race struggles that were happening at that time in Chicago. 
Unfortunately, it is recentered around a white woman. So while you have a race discussion in the movie happening, the conversation is centered around the white woman. And unfortunately, it also plays into some negative tropes. Uh, again, the black villain, the you know, taking the pure chaste white woman. And as much as it doesn't lean into that, it still has notes of it. Candyman is about an urban legend. And like most horror movies, that's what it's based off the concept of morality tale. And so in this movie, you have the concept of Virginia Madsen's character is a, a, a college student and she's investigating urban legends uh, and people's experience with it. She meets uh, a woman that works at the college uh, as a cleaning staff who tells her about Cabrini Green and Candyman and this urban legend that's happening in this uh, housing complex. And Project. a woman was... Sorry. Uh, Pride project. <laughs> Complex That's makes true. it sound way too nice. This is where an example of language comes mm -hmm. into it. So when you use the term project, I know that there's a... Negative... A negative like, association to that. Yes. And so, like... I chose housing complex because I'm like, that's what it is. But the use of the word project is really interesting to me. That is a housing project. Mm -hmm. And so is that like a, a legal term that they would be used or is that more of a social term? I think it's probably more of the latter. I mean, it, it came from a particular movement in terms of addressing uh, low income housing from a, a particular time period of you know u.s history yeah, yeah, yeah. but yeah yeah uh, housing comp I, I, no, i'm sorry and i don't mean to take you out of your train of thought here no, it's just no, that no. yeah the housing complex sounds way too cute projects are in, especially coming from the chicago area there yes. was nothing cute about cabrini green nothing no and this is why i really wanted to touch base with you about this because i know you have a, a experience of living in chicago and cabrini green is a cultural institution uh and no, i don't know that just from Candyman, but I know that from a sociological perspective. But the history that's presented in Candyman with regards to the projects is interesting, considering there's a scene where the Cabrini Green projects is discovered to be the exact same buildings that were built on the opposite side of town, which is predominantly white and affluential. And so the main characters are in this condominium, which is very expensive, and they realize that the exact same model of uh, apartment uh, building is used for Cabrini Green. So Cabrini Green, when it existed before it was demolished, is on the north side of the city in like just above the downtown area. It just so happens to be right next to one of the richest areas of Chicago called the Gold Coast. I haven't gone to all the projects in Chicago just to like make this comparison, but in terms of socioeconomic class, like the walk from what used to be Cabrini Green to the Gold Coast was probably one of the most stark in terms of the way everything changes within an instant. I mean, there are other places across the country that have that sort of like really expensive area right next to something very dilapidated. But for me in Chicago, that was like one of the most extreme examples in, across the entire city, for sure. That's fascinating. And they incorporate that discussion into the movie. And again, because the original written piece by Clive Barker was focused on class, I think that discussion is still present, but the race angle is evident in the American remake of this movie. Um, so hearing your experience and hearing the histories of Cabrini Green and its proximity, 
makes absolute sense. And again, this this story again about a white woman who is diving into the you know black communities in the projects and how that is played out does subvert a little bit uh, subvert a, a, a couple of the ideas and notions uh, and i remember there's a specific scene in the movie where the main white character and her friend her best friend who is black go to the projects and they're looking for entry into the building where a woman died and they want to get some more information and that's they're discussing how they can navigate this scene by looking more professional and they're and it always took me it, it always stood out for me because in typical horror movies you have a lot of especially at the 80s you had a lot of dumb dialogue happening with a lot of the characters and almost you wanted the characters to perish and like you know there's a little a bit of uh schadenfreude in uh, some horror movies in the 80s where you're actually rooting for the villain again we could have an entire discussion about which how that movie is and that trope is established but in this scene it really grounds it where you have a discussion about the peril of these characters and they're concerned about their safety and it has nothing to do with a horror movie character it's they're in a real life situation where they're feeling uncomfortable going into a space where their safety is going to be jeopardized. And for me, that was a really a bit of a reality check for a horror movie that I'm watching as I'm 12 years old and not really understanding race and concepts of race yet. But just to have that experience of that movie was so fascinating and it really enlightened me and it kind of allowed me to understand the world in a better way. I'm not saying that that message is always correct, but it was interesting for me. And I think what beyond the social messages that were uh, that are evident in Candyman, for me the music is just top notch. And us talking about classical music and you know expectations of what composers are supposed to be doing, Candyman was you know going to be a horror movie, and it was recorded and filmed as a horror movie. And it wasn't until after it was complete that Philip Glass was brought on to make the music for the movie. And so that, to me, is a bit of an interesting concept that, you know, some composers are involved in the filmmaking process as it goes. Philip Glass just came into this and was like, all right, I see that you've made a horror movie and I'm going to add my twists on it. I think he's created an own character and that adds so much to the movie, but it just is so powerful that I think it really elevates this movie from a standard typical slasher to a really well-made movie. Regardless of its horror designation, I think it's just a really well-made movie. Masterclass first episode, which is super long and just so wonderful to hear myself talk for so long. I want to share a little story about my viewing experience with Candyman, which I have shared uh, with several of my friends. And they actually, uh, a lot of us have a similar experience with the movie. Um, and that is, a lot of us watched it at a sleepover. <laughs> 
And I would tell the story of the way I watched Candyman was I went over to, uh, it was a birthday party sleepover. It must have been like 10 or 11, maybe 12. And somebody had rented a couple movies and one of them was Candyman. I remember they had a large window and it was like, they had various windows and it was so scary in the nighttime and I'm watching Candyman. I had to go to the bathroom and all of a sudden there's a mirror and I was terrified of that movie. Like it genuinely scared me. There was some really good jump scares in it. Um, and as I shared that story with several people, they would tell me, they're like, Oh my God, I watched Candyman at a sleepover too. So for some weird reason, several of my friends and I have a similar experience to our first time watching Candyman. But since then, I've actually shared this movie with quite a few friends who who don't like horror. So I think what I'm going to suggest is that the homework <laughs> from this master class <laughs> is that y'all go and watch Candyman. And I want us to come back and discuss what it is you thought of it, what you thought of the music, and how the discussions we've had today about horror kind of impacted your viewing experience because like Vampiris Lesbos, I know it's a weird connection, but I do think that there's actually some really good discussion we can have about watching a campy sixties horror movie uh, and a well-made nineties horror movie. <laughs> 1971, by the way. Oh, shit. that's right. Yeah. I think that's a perfect um, thing for us to do for a next episode for a follow-up. So this has been fantastic. Thank you very much, Professor Adima, for <laughs> providing us with this fantastic information and taking us through not only the horror genre, but the horror genre from the music perspective and from your own perspective. I think it's it's been really enlightening and fantastic to get your experiences throughout your lifetime of watching and listening to the horror genre. So we really do. I really appreciate that. And I think it's really interesting to get an individual perspective throughout the entirety of the genre's history. Jason, any thoughts from you? I've always had friends that identified as homosexual, but we never had these sort of conversations. So I think it's been really helpful to me. And I don't want to say anything stupid like, hey, there's my homosexual over there or anything <laughs> like that. But I mean, it really is has been insightful to have that perspective in this specific context because it's stuff that I've just never thought about in, you know, my not exactly sheltered, but just sort of unchallenged heterosexual thinking mm, um yeah. so i i definitely appreciate this conversation and even though it hasn't necessarily made me like horror anymore i at least can respect it so thank you and i appreciate that i don't want you guys to come out of this being like yeah i'm a huge horror nerd now but i really do i like the space that we're creating for each other to share our stories but also to share our interests and so that's why I really feel honored that I was going to, I get to be the first one to kind of share my interests and my passion, my experience with you two. But I really do want you to know that I'm super excited to also do the same for you both and for you to create that space to share your experiences and your interests uh, and me to learn about that. Cause I think that's going to be really powerful. And I think our listeners are going to be able to get to know us a little bit more, but also experience a discussion that, like you said, doesn't happen a lot. And that we might have similar experiences or friends in our lives, but we don't necessarily talk about, you know, why is Candyman really cool? <laughs> That's the, the beauty of the medium. We have yeah. complete carte blanche to just chat. There are so many podcasts out there 
we can be as narrow focused, we can narrow cast as much as we want, we can broadcast as much as we want. I mean, we do the things we've we've set up a podcast specifically about movie music. I mean, that's pretty narrow in itself. So why not funnel that narrowness into the things that really are passionate? And clearly, from the length of the record and the episode, there's passion behind this. And I think we'll have that same sort of level of passion and interest from anything that we move what we talk about moving forward, because we've already created a really great space to be open and honest about this. I mean, I think what Jason said in regards to that homosexual perspective that you provide, Anthony, I think you and I can provide that back to Jason by just a, a, a perspective of race. I mean, I want to be able to have a really open, comfortable pers- like setting for us to be able to talk about these things. And hopefully we've created that. A round of applause. Yes. Stranger. Stranger. <laughs> yes. And if you get that reference, you understand me 100%. Excellent. Well, I think what we'll do is we will pause it there for today. We are going to end the Masterclass episode and we're going to provide some homework out to our listeners. So for our next episode, what we're going to do is we're going to watch two movies, Vampiros Lesbos from 1971 and Candyman from 92. And we're going to also listen to those soundtracks. And we're going to have a really good conversation based on Anthony's Masterclass here about where those two films fit into the horror genre, what those soundtracks sound like, do they fit into what those films are trying to represent? Are they something that we really want to get into and discuss further? I think so. Let's really get into that and provide a little bit of perspective into this really great conversation that we've had today. So go ahead and find those two movies anywhere you can, watch them and listen to the soundtracks and come back into our next episode because we're going to get deep into both of those as a specific subject matter. But for now, I think we are going to close up this episode. Again, thank you to Anthony for providing this really great perspective on the horror movie genre. Thanks, Anthony. Really do appreciate it. My pleasure. And likewise, I really I enjoyed this conversation. And thanks to Jason for, of course, providing really great insight, some questions, being here as well. I think it's it's fantastic to, to have you providing your insight and, of course, just being a part of the broadcast team here. Really do appreciate your participation as well. Oh, shucks. <laughs> <laughs> That's it for us today at Even the Score. We really do appreciate the listen. Go ahead and find us on your podcast app of choice, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Uh, we're on all sorts of different platforms. Find us. Also, find us on Twitter and Instagram. Our handles are at Even the Score Pod. Communicate with us. Interact with us. We'd love to hear uh, how uh, how our episodes are doing. Of course, a great way to do that is by rating and reviewing our episodes. Give us a five-star review. Provide us with a little bit of insight about how we're doing. It really does help promote the show and get us to new ears and new audiences uh, also another great way of doing that is by sharing our episodes go ahead and take our links share them with friends family colleagues whoever any assistance that we can get from that the better so again thanks to the my co-hosts and thank you to you the listener for everything that you've done for listening to us and providing our episodes out but that is it for us here at even the score podcast take care 